The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Arsenal are Christmas number one. Will they be another novelty act or will their record still sound as good come May? Meanwhile, bees are buzzing after Tony scores and Haaland doesn't. Spurs chase Leeds, the same way they do most weeks. Frankly awful Everton. And for Rodgers, it's hammers time as Leicester get another fine score. All that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show. Well, Monday the 14th of November. Hello, listener. With us today on the Totally Football Show, we have Tim Spears and Jay Harris of TheAthletic.com and Rory Smith of Sister Publication, The New York Times. Hello. Dot com. Is it? Is it? NYTimes.com. It's all digital now. We're a digital first publication. <laughs> I like it. Did you get savaged by Cristiano Ronaldo over the weekend? Any of you? Awkward if not, because I think most people did in football. <laughs> Were you entertained by that man who was bad decision by club complaining of club making bad decisions? Yeah, it's a remarkable interview, a remarkable choice of interviewer. I think it, there's something very... Actually, I've got to be careful here because he does follow me on Twitter, but there's something very low rent about a player of Cristiano Ronaldo's um, like legacy and legend going on, not just a Piers Morden show, but on... Is it Talk TV, the channel? Mm-hmm. Right. Can I just ask, Rory, who, who does Cristiano follow you on Twitter? No, not Cristiano, Piers. Ah, the other fellow. <laughs> yeah. Surely it makes perfect sense. Uh, he's finding solace in another faded name who now walks out at the first sign of trouble. Uh, yeah, exactly. They, they, they might have bonded over that. I just, uh, do you not think that if you're Cristiano Ronaldo and you're, like, your PR person comes to you and says, we've lined up an interview for you to kind of vent all of these frustrations, you are one of the greatest players of all time, you feel you have been shabbily treated, whether he's accurate to feel he's been shabbily treated or not is a different matter, but he clearly feels he's been shabbily treated. Mm. The person we can get for you to sit down with is not like Saturday Night Live or like Trevor Noah. It's it's Piers Morgan on a channel that I think has about 80,000 viewers. It's, I mean, right. it's an astonishing thing that he's done it there. Especially because he's asking for more respect, Right, that that yeah. was that's one of the key messages. And if 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 you look at some of the presenters on Talk TV, they include Vanessa Feltz and Jeremy Kyle. Um, <laughs> I, I, so, I don't know them, Tim, but it, it, it does have a slightly travelodge feel to it. The, the, the whole thing uh, was he offered around other broadcast entities? Do you know, or or were the Athletic perhaps offered this Cristiano exclusive? I'm not sure he likes us. Mm. I can't imagine he went. He would have wanted a print interview i think they but feel it is strange as you say that it ends up on talk tv well yeah like i mean surely like sky or bt or even like something like cnn you'd have thought mm, would have been qvc qvc he's got stuff to you know he's, his product that he's selling is himself so maybe QVC. well and the underwear i'm thinking <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> i i just find it i find it odd actually to be perfectly honest even leaving aside everything he said that at no point did cristiano ronaldo who is you know, arguably the most famous person on the planet, say, hang on, what's the TV channel called? Who who watches this? Like, what what are their metrics? That, I just well, find that remarkable. When uh, people may not watch talk TV, as you call it, but I think probably a lot of people have seen yeah. the quote. So in that sense, yeah. his, his message is out there to what... 
To what end, to what result, I guess we'll see uh, how much it's going to shift the, the narrative in his favour, I think is highly questionable. But uh, we can talk about that more or we can just kind of park it and move on to people who did their talking on the pitch. What do you say? Well, there's one other thing that I think probably should be mentioned, and that's that Cristiano Ronaldo did spend most of the summer trying to leave Manchester United. And that that does not appear to have fitted in his interview. Well, the, the clips that have, have made their way around social media, not being a viewer of talk TV, Um Maybe he went into it in depth and explained himself. I, I doubt it. That It does feel as though that maybe is a relevant, salient fact to why he's had the season he's had so far. It's, it's actually quite... It's easy to, to kind of mock Ronaldo and it's, it's actually quite easy to dislike him. But it's, it's quite sad that, yeah, one of the greatest careers of all time, his, his time at Man United, we presume, kind of comes to an end mm. in an interview on a, on a relatively budget television station. All right. Although, wasn't it Roy Keane who... Who did his final act on Man United TV? Yeah, but there's a, even... there's a glory to that, isn't there? <laughs> Self-relation on the house channel. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it was the last round of Premier League action before the Boxing Day. Uh, headlines included Brentford beating Man City at Man City. Brentford. And with Arsenal winning at Wolves, that is the Gunners now five points clear for Christmas. Elsewhere, Newcastle handed Chelsea their third straight league defeat. And with Spurs, Man United and Liverpool all winning, that's Chelsea now as close to the bottom three as they are to the top four. Further down, Villa made it two for two under Emery with a win at Brighton. Leicester, who've been hustling us all for the first two months, win again this time at West Ham. And Everton lose to Bournemouth by three goals for the second time in a week. The Hammers and Everton now just one point off the bottom three. Woof. We're going to start with West London's finest at the Etihad. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. They've got a man over if they play the right ball. The silver pulls it back, they score! Ivan Tony again! Ivan Tony taking his World Cup snub and shoving it right back down Gareth Southgate's throat there with a brace. Second goal coming in the 98th minute. What a dramatic finale. Jay, Jay, you were there. You were there for what Thomas Frank called the greatest game in Brentford's history. Certainly their first away win of the season. Why was this so huge? I can't talk about this game without mentioning the fact that they lost to Gillingham, who are in the bottom half of League Two four days before. Um, well, it was a one-all draw. I think Gillingham scored from their only, only attempt on goal in the game, got knocked out on penalties. Um, and then obviously a few days before that, they conceded, a, I think it was a, like a 96th minute equaliser against Nottingham Forest. They've got key players are injured and it just felt like they were limping towards the World Cup break, felt like they were wounded. And just this spectre of Manchester City, um, Haaland, who's not going to the World Cup, you know, just wanting to get a few more goals before before he doesn't play for a couple of months. So expectation was so low. Um, loads of Brentford fans were were asking me what constitutes a good result against Man City for for Brentford when you're comparing budgets and all that type what of did thing. You feel? What did you feel a good result would have been? I don't want to be overly negative, but you know, they they lost twice to City last season, one nil and two nil, and they were mm. they were really respectable performances. So I think had that happened again, and you know they'd shown a bit of grit and determination, everyone would have said, well, do you know what, that's boosted the mood a little bit ahead of the World Cup, but. Their game plan was was bang on. Uh, I think Matthias Jensen, who I spoke to after the game, called it the perfect game plan. Um, you could see in the first few minutes when Onyeka went through on goal, Tony was just causing Manuel Akanji and Emmerich Laporte so many problems with his physicality. And obviously I've banged on so many times that I think Tony should be going to the World Cup. And aside from his penalties, I think his physicality and his aerial threat is, is a huge part of that. 
And David Rea's performance has gone under the radar a little bit because, you know, the Tony England angle, but Rea's distribution is just so precise. You can't do a tactic like that unless you've got a goalkeeper who is that good with the ball at his feet. And I thought he was simply phenomenal. Made a couple of big saves from from Phil Foden as well and, and Rodri. So they were a little bit fortunate at one point with a handball that was very much on the line on the line and and that's why the game there was so much extra time there were so many VAR checks there was one two minute period where I think Man City had three separate penalty incidents being reviewed by VAR so they definitely rode their luck at times um, but from front to back it was a phenomenal performance. Now you mentioned David Reyes role in the tactical approach one element of which was kind of beating the City press by just going over the top of it. Yeah and they tried that a few times last season and Guardiola very much spoke about it he was like you know, when they're just hitting it long, we can't press and win the ball high high off the pitch. And then we just didn't really know how to, to deal with the, like I said, the awkward physicality of the game. Akanji and Tony were constantly involved in some sort of arm wrestle and, and City just didn't really know what to do. But I think crucially, again, Rico Henry, who's their left wing back, was pushing up really high and Bumo was running off and Yeka was running off. So they made sure Tony wasn't isolated because that, you know, you can quickly see that happen. Um, so that was key to it as well, just the midfielders being brave enough to go forward. But one thing as well, Thomas Frank made quite a bold substitution to take off on Yeka, who he's more of a defensive-minded midfielder, and to bring on Josh De Silva. And I think that was in the 87th minute. So you've still mm. got about 10 or so minutes of the game left with extra time. And I felt, yeah, that's a, that's a bold call, that. and But it's also the sign of a manager who's unafraid to go for three points and look how it worked out. You know, De Silva ended up getting the, the crucial assist for Tony's winner and Tony could have got a hat-trick and again, it was De Silva who who ran past his, his marker and, and set Tony up for that chance as well. So real credit for a manager who, you know, maybe sometimes we expect teams at the lower end of the table to go to Man City and Arsenal and whoever it is and be happy to take a point, but that was a manager who was brave enough and bold enough to take a massive gamble and it paid off. Yeah, I mean, phenomenal. Would you agree with Thomas Frank's assessment that this was the greatest game in Brentford's history. So he, he put a little bit of context on that in the press conference and he said, in terms of the wider implications of a result, they can't really look much further than the championship playoff final just because of what that meant to get into the Premier League and the financial implications, etc., etc. But in terms of just looking at the performance over 90 minutes um, and then comparing the, the financial situations, Thomas Frank was like, I think that's the best we've... Yeah, the, the biggest single result in the club's history. Wow. So... Do I agree with him? I was having this conversation with people yesterday. What was the better result? Because the 4-1 at Stamford Bridge was huge as well. Obviously, the 2-0 against Arsenal. But I think I think it has to be City, just because they are one of the best teams in the world. Obviously, the, the Premier League champions for a reason. So much quality. And, and Thomas Frank, again, he said in the press conference that before the game, he was desperate for Haaland to play. He was, mm. like, <laughs> he was like, I really want to test our, ourselves against the best Man City team that, that could possibly be out there. And it was the best Man City team that could possibly be out there. Um, Haaland, De Bruyne, Cancelo. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I'd probably agree with him. OK. What was your favourite bit? Was there one moment that you particularly chuckled over? Just the just the goal in the, in the 98th minute. I think right. um, I let out a little. Maybe ashamed to say I let out a little squeal when that when that went in. But like I said, it was just a, you just knew when that went in. It was such a moment. And I think also, undoubtedly, it's been one of the most difficult weeks of Tony's career. So to kind of respond by putting in a performance like that and to kind of get the adulation from the um, from the fans, from the backroom staff. Um, so when they went into the dressing room afterwards, I think Thomas Frank got all the players and the backroom staff in a circle. 
you know, gave like a, a short speech and then they all started um, like banging the lockers and, and chanting Ivan Tony's name. So what a moment that must be for him after what's been a, yeah, a, a rejection by, by Gareth Southgate that must have been pretty bitter to take. Wow, what a moment. City, Tim and, Tim and Rory, what, what was your take on, on Haaland, for example? No shots on target from the Norwegian for the first time this season. I wondered watching it whether... Do you remember the first game that he had with City in the Premier League and it looked like he wasn't quite in sync? The team didn't quite know how to, to look for the big guy up front because that wasn't how they played. I wondered if they'd kind of maybe slipped into the old way of thinking uh, well, in I the th- weeks that he's been out. I think the first, um, the first thing I'd like to say is that Ivan Tony should have had a hat-trick. Uh, <laughs> the the um, Southgate would have been sat there thinking, yeah, well, you know, Ivan, you missed your chance to really prove it wrong. <laughs> the, um, I don't know. I th- To be fair, I think the... Th- the the defining thing with City to me was that, and Guardiola said exactly the opposite after after the game, and who am I to contradict Pep Guardiola, but I can't believe that there weren't a lot of players on that pitch who were on some level thinking, what I really want from this football match is not to be injured in it. Mm. And you, you speak to players and former players about about the psychology of knowing there is a World Cup a week away. And they all say, oh, yeah, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't enter your thinking. You still go for the ball. You still, you still want to win. You, you know, as soon as you cross the white line, it's, all, it's always the same. And I'm not a footballer. I never have been a footballer. But I refuse to. I just don't believe humans operate like that. I think there is a point at which if you are sprinting for a football, you'll still sprint. But are you going to kind of increase the speed at the point where you think you might be about to pull a hamstring? No. You're not going to. Are you going to stick your foot in that extra half an inch or even maybe just pull it away a little bit and, and maybe try not to get injured. And I, I, I felt it's not to take anything away from Brentford in the slightest, who played who played the game absolutely perfectly. But I think in the last couple of weeks, a lot of the big the bigger teams who have got a lot of players going to the to the World Cup, you've started to see just that those little bits of drop offs in performances. And I just wonder whether with City they were kind of you know, it was twelve thirty on a Saturday. It was a team they'll have expected to beat. I kind of wonder whether they just they looked as a little bit like they were treading water slightly. They didn't really have any ideas. There wasn't a huge amount of creativity. Jay mentioned that the, you know Raya made a couple of saves, but there was never really a siege to the goal. Particularly, they never looked like they were. They Brentford looked like they were breaking a sweat, but they didn't look like they were under real pressure mm. about to crack. Mm. And I just wonder whether there was a there was a slightly inhibited quality to City's performance, and the 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 most obvious explanation for that is is the World Cup. Absolutely, and it, it is a result or a performance that have been coming in the last few weeks. Narrow victories over Brighton, Leicester, and at the, at the last moment, Fulham in the previous uh, Premier League outing. What did you make of it, Tim? Yeah, I, I just like Roy's makes a really good point there about the distraction. Like a lot of them are flown to Qatar the next morning. I think you know. Any human's going to be distracted by the biggest tournament or thing of their life happening the next morning. You know, if, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm flying to Qatar tomorrow for the mm. biggest journalism conference of <laughs> all time, then I'm not, my, the article I write is just not going to be quite as good. Um, so I guess if you equate it to our own lives, then, then you know, perhaps not during the game, but certainly before, during, halftime, whatever. And City have got the most players, I think, going to the World Cup. Is that right? 16? So... You'd have to suggest that's some kind of factor, but obviously you can't take anything away from Brentford, who just look fearless, to be honest. And considering they hadn't won away from home all season, struggling for form, lost to Gillingham, together with that attitude, obviously says a lot for uh, for Thomas Frank. For, mm. for a bit of extra context, um, when I was in the mix zone after the game, 
Matthias Jensen, who plays for Denmark, was immediately getting on a flight. Da David Rea was immediately getting on a flight. Uh, Brian Mbuma, who's plays for Cameroon, was immediately getting on a flight. Because um, Ray, I really wanted to speak to. I said, you know, David can have a couple of words. And he was wheeling these two large suitcases through. And he's like, I've got to go straight away. So they were they were heading off straight away. I didn't see any City players come through the mix zone, but I expect it was the same for some of them as well. The old suitcase routine. Yeah, we've, we, we've all had that. Uh, Rory, when are you flying to Qatar, by the way? I fly to Qatar on Friday. Right. We'll be watching your performance today. I mean, my performance has been has been subpar for, for weeks, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Arsenal have players going to the World Cup. But they comfortably won their visit to Wolves 2-0. I say comfortably, actually. There was a bit of controversy early, early on in this game when uh, William Saliba... Looked like he conceded a penalty on Gonzalo Guedes, but the referee and their friends at VAR felt otherwise. The story of the game, thus a brace from Odegaard, who Duncan Alexander points out, has scored more away goals this season than Wolves had. Have. Boring. Mm. Yeah. Gunners extending their lead at the top of the table to five points. I mean, that's a lot of points, isn't it? I mean, we know that City will come roaring back. We've seen them do it so often. We also know that Arsenal have used the same starting eleven, or have made the fewest changes to that starting eleven. I think only Brighton, in fact, have made fewer uh, over the course of this season so far. So there's an element of potential burnout for Arteta's team. But I mean, five points at Christmas, nobody saw that coming. The the feel good factor around Arsenal is is something that I don't think you can really well you can't put a price on it. It's it's hard to believe that was it last year there were those mass protests against the ownership. And the majority of fans seem to want Arteta out again. Only last year, it's been a remarkable um, turnaround. Obviously, City City are still favourites for the league because we know that they're capable of winning almost every single match for the rest of the season. We don't know that Arsenal are capable of that. And obviously, as James says, um, they haven't really been tested in terms of their squad depth. I just can't wait for them to play each other. The, the fact that mm. they're playing each other twice in the second half of the season, th those games are potentially going to define the title race now. Um, but at the moment, I think April 26th is when they're first due to play each other. Um, I don't know when <laughs> that re when that rearranged game is going to be, but obviously, um, yeah, the game on April 26th is only five games left after that. But yeah, I think the, the big test, well, Arsenal have a lot of big tests, but when they come back, they've got um, West Ham at home, Arsenal. Brighton away, and then in January they've got Newcastle at home, Spurs away, and Man United at home. February, March look, looks a little kinder, but if they do get through sort of December, January relatively unscathed, I think people will start saying, you know, it feels like it could be their year. I think the biggest difference um, between Arsenal this season and, and last season is it felt like Arsenal were capable of beating anybody last season, but they had to thrive on absolute chaos to do it. A little bit like Leeds. They, they would beat teams, I think they beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge 4-2 towards the end of the season um, when they put Nketiah up front. And I think nobody expected them to go in and win that game. And it was so like helter-skelter all over the place that they just kind of managed to kind of put their head above, above the water and win it. Whereas this season, they just seemed to be so much more controlled. They don't seem to panic nearly as much. They were so inconsistent last season. They'd go on those those runs where they'd win three games in a row and they'd follow it up, follow it up by losing three games in a row. So I think that consistency and that maturity has been um, a massive reason as to why they are where they are. But as Tim points out, their squad depth is going to be tested immeasurably in the second half of the season, especially when you know, you've know you got Jesus, Martinelli, Ben White, all of those key players in that starting eleven go into the World Cup. And I personally look at Jesus and Thomas Partey and say if either of those two got injured mm. are Nketiah and El Neni good enough 
to kind of step up and fill that void and, and keep them challenging for the title. I personally don't think so. Happy to be proved wrong. Um, whereas obviously if the drop-off between City's bench players and their starters is 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 much smaller. So um, it's fantastic for them to be at the top of the table, but it also feels like inevitable that it will... I really hope Arsenal fans don't hammer me for this, but it also feels like, as we've mentioned, that City will come roaring back at one stage. Um, but hopefully that doesn't happen and hopefully it goes down to, to April 26th. I still think City will win the lead and I think City are capable more than anybody else of winning 14 games in a row. They've done it. They do. They basically do it once a season. But this season, I don't know, it's not going to be like a 95-point title. It might be 82, 83, 84. And Arsenal can definitely get that. Yeah. If it does come down to the final day, Tim, <laughs> do you know who Arsenal are playing? Wolves again. Wolves. Although... File this with your other unknowns about the second half of the season. That'll be a Wolves with, what, five months' worth of Yulan Lopetegui? Mm. Do, you know, do you know who Man City play on the final day of the season? Oh, go on. It's Brentford, because this <gasps> weekend is a, it's a reverse of this weekend's fixtures. So Brentford will be playing at home. You wouldn't, to be fair, if it goes to the last day, you would not want... That is the last, that, almost the last place City would want to go. Mm. That's ironic that Wolves will be at Arsenal, because um, last season... Ruben Neves and others had a pop at Arsenal for uh, their celebrations at one U- like they'd won the league <laughs> after they won a fairly regulation league game. So, yeah, they'll perhaps get to see what it's really like. <laughs> All right. Well, it could be a very different Wolves by then. But uh, plenty more to discuss from this weekend. Next up, in fact, let's talk about Spurs as a metaphor for marriage. This upcoming World Cup, what are The Athletic going to be doing about it? Well, every night I'll be hosting a totally football show with the likes of Raphael Honigstein, James Horncastle and the rest of the Totally crew. Then every morning from Qatar, wham, The Athletic Football Podcast will be at you with David Ornstein, Matt Slater, Adam Crafton and many more. There'll also be World Cup content from Adam Hurry's Football Clichés podcast, Michael Cox's insightful Athletic Football Tactics podcast and Joe Devine's TIFO podcast with all the stories that matter from Qatar. All in all, The Athletic is your essential audio companion for the upcoming World Cup. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Sanchez smartly into Kane, lovely ball, Kulusevski, runners with him, Kulusevski, Bentecourt! He's done it again! Tottenham 4, Leeds 3, Saturday at 3 o'clock. Spurs games as a metaphor for marriage after dallying with misses and watching other people score, you then settle down with your better half. Sometimes you have a son, but not in this case. Tim, you were there for a crazy, chaotic, madcap game that somehow went entirely as expected. Yeah, it did, yeah. Uh, so Spurs haven't led at half-time in the last nine games now. So, you know, if you're a Spurs fan, you might as well just turn up at four o'clock. This was their first goal in the first half for nine games as well. 
I mean, I thought Leeds were really naive, to be honest. Maybe they know no other way to play, but you don't open up and let Spurs play. You know, you sit deep, you frustrate the crowd, which is easily done. Um, it was Emerson Royale who was, who, was, who was getting the brunt of it on Saturday. He got booed during the game and then cheered off the pitch when he was subbed. Um, so, yeah, Leeds were sort of far too open. Conte made a really good tactical switch, actually. He changed the game uh, on 70 minutes. So he took off Richarlison, obviously a forward, and replacing with Basuma, defensive midfielder. Went 3-5-2, pushed Bentancourt further up as kind of the the third attacking mid- midfielder. Um, and he ended up scoring the third and fourth goals. So, yeah, Spurs were actually third top scorers with 31 this season, which which you know, I've watched a lot of their matches. feels absolutely remarkable. Mm. Um, although almost half of them have come in three games against Leicester, Southampton and Leeds. So yeah, the, the issue right now with with Spurs is that is the, is the defence because they just they just keep falling behind every single week. Christian Romero is one of those types uh, who's injured but will play next week in the World Cup. Um, Eric <laughs> Eric Dyer's just become hapless at the, completely the wrong time, genuinely hapless, making like a a, a, a gaff every single game. So, um, but but you know, despite all that, they've won they've won more more points from losing positions than than any other team. It's it's thirteen now. I, mm. I know you have to be I know you have to be losing in the first place to do that. But it do, it generally says something for their fitness record. I don't know if you guys saw, but in the summer they went out to South Korea for pre season yeah. and they were getting pushed so hard that Harry Kane was was throwing up on the side of the pitch. Um, but obviously it was all worth it for that win over Leeds in uh, in November. But um, <laughs> but it is it's, it's testament on a on a sort of serious note to the to the to the work that um, Jean Pierre Ventrone did, uh, their fitness coach who, who who died of leukemia last month. And I think it's a really important point to point out that you know we talk about Spurs' schedule because they played thirteen matches in forty three days, no free midweek since September. And obviously that's a lot to deal with with a small squad, but they've also had to deal with you know the, the grief and the turmoil of, of losing a, a really popular staff member who's also extremely good at good at his job. Mm. So you've, you've got to pay credit for them to be fourth in the league and last 16 of the Champions League, despite a lot of problems that they've had. Um, they've done a really good job overall. It, oh, it's funny that Tim mentions the, the fitness thing, because there is a theory, and Tim is closer to Spurs than I am, so you may have heard it. There is a theory that Conte has deliberately set out for Spurs to be underclubbed this half of the season so that they can kind of come back strong in the second half. And that would that would kind of explain the nature of their performances. But it's kind of contradicted by the fact that Ventrone, who I think his nickname in Italy was the drill sergeant, they he was regarded by... Yeah, he was Juve, the like Marine. A, yeah, the, the Marine. Marine yeah. He was the kind of Juve's players loved him, but regarded him as a monster. And... As Tim says, like that he was he was making the players sick on the pitch in in Seoul. That doesn't that doesn't scream. We're taking it gentle for the first few weeks, lads. <laughs> That's I, I, you'd, you'd worry about what was coming afterwards. To be honest, the th- funny thing with Spurs is they've been like criticised roundly. There's all this like the, the fans are fretful. I saw them at Old Trafford, and I think that might be the worst display of any team I've seen this season. They thought they were genuinely awful that day, but they're in the title race. If you're Conte, I think you probably take this as the first for 14, 15 games of the season. They are, what, three off City, eight off Arsenal. They're, they're in it. Them and Newcastle are both in the title race. And if if Conte has got a plan to try and make the second half of the season a bit more convincing than, than the first, then it's, it's working. Hmm. As for Leeds, Jesse Marsh said he felt his heart had been ripped out. He's such a diva, that, that fellow. <laughs> uh, there was... I mean, there, he was entitled to feel a little bit of chagrin over the the call on the on the Kane goal, which looked like a clear foul on, yeah. on, uh, on 100% Melier. 100% a foul. Mm. 
there's been there's there's a few ones this weekend where VAR haven't got involved, and you're you're kind of watching it thinking, really? And that one was the that was probably the first. Like that was just obviously a foul. It was definitely a foul, but then I think there was there was a foul on Bentancur in the lead up to, to mm. Leeds' second or third as well. I sort of felt like it was one one all in the VAR stakes. Um, <laughs> my um, one of the highlights from this match was that Kulisevsky went down uh, just in front of the Leeds fans. You know, he's obviously sort of exaggerating his injury, and uh, the Leeds fans started um, chanting he was a soft Southern bastard. Um, but as as <laughs> As Dan Kilpatrick from the standard points out, he's, he's actually born a thousand miles north of Leeds in, in Stockholm. <laughs> so I don't know if they were being ironic or not, but yeah. <laughs> Kulosevsky's return to Spurs certainly lighting up this game. And Michael Cox in particular raving about his touch on the on the fourth goal where he I mean it was such a simple touch as well. He just uses the his opponent's speed against him uh, in a delightfully simple fashion. Mm. Very nice. Well that was Spurs then. Back in the top four. Also winning this weekend, Newcastle 1-0 against Chelsea. Liverpool 3-1 over Nathan Jones' Southampton. Man United late on 2-1 at Fulham. That Newcastle victory over Chelsea, Joe Willett with the only goal in that game. That's their fifth victory in a row. They are 10 games unbeaten. They are in their highest league position at Christmas since they were top 21 years ago. But I want to have a quick word about Chelsea, if that's okay. Three Premier League defeats in a row for them, no wins in five, and the second Premier League game in a row in which they've recorded an XG of 0.3. Only four Premier League teams have taken fewer shots than Chelsea this season. What's going on there? It's like delayed teething problems, isn't it? Because Graham Potter kind of took charge and did well pretty much straight away. They, were, they, they beat Milan twice, they, they'd obviously qualified in the Champions League, he, he got a few, win, a few wins under his belt and you sort of thought, yeah, okay, this is... I'd never really understood why they sat Tuchel, but this, this seems like a fairly straightforward... A good manager's gone, another good manager's come in, everything will keep ticking away. He's changed his team a lot and I, I know that in certain situations that's a, that's a strength changing your lineup and your kind of approach. But with Potter, increasingly, it's looked a little bit like he's not quite sure how he can make them do what he wants them to do. And they've just, in the last, what, three weeks, maybe a month, it's just kind of ground to a fairly substantial halt, I think. The break has come at a terrible time for Newcastle. We've been saying that for weeks. It's probably come at a really good time for Graham Potter and Chelsea. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing some weird things like Conor Gallagher at right wing back. I can't imagine there's been any time to test that out on the training ground. I mean, mm. there's, there's, there's literally been no there's been no free midweeks, yeah, since since September. So if you know, day after a game you're recovering, you might get one day of training and then you're travelling. It's just so he's obviously an experimental manager with lots of different formations and tactics up his sleeve. But you you can't be experimenting with that during matches. It's got to be done on the training ground. So it's it's not just Gallagher that he's tried at um, right wing back as well. He's put Sterling and Pulisic there, as, and and there are times where understandably Sterling's probably been caught out defensively because he's doing something that we've never really seen him before. Obviously mentioned about um, Arsenal being a lot more controlled and, and when they beat Chelsea, they weren't threatened at all. You know, Aubameyang didn't do anything. Amanda Broya came off the bench and didn't do anything. And considering the attacking talent that Chelsea do have at their disposal, for it to not be clicking going forward or for, for individuals to not come up with solutions on the pitch, it, it's just a little bit baffling. Fair enough. So issues then, but perhaps understandable, given the limitations this new manager is dealing with as he tries to come to grips with his 
with his new charge. Uh, what about the other uh, two games that I mentioned there? Man United, their win over Fulham and Liverpool defeating Southampton. Anything you want to mention with those before we move on to other things? I thought I actually thought Southampton looked quite good at Anfield. I mean, Liverpool should have scored about seven, which admittedly isn't a great start. But in attack, I thought Southampton caused them problems. Causing Liverpool problems at the moment in attack is not particularly difficult. But but Southampton looked pretty purposeful. They they had a bit of energy. They were, they were, they had some ideas. And it, I think, if you're Nathan Jones, you're probably not too upset at the performance the fact that they got beaten at Anfield isn't a massive shock but I thought there were signs of life there um, and again he's a he's a someone who's got a reputation as a good coach building on the work of another good coach you know there's, there is reason to, for Southampton to be hopeful um, Darwin Nunez has now got um, he's averaging a goal or an assist like above one in a, one every 90 minutes which is every 88 kind of, minutes yeah. yeah that it's funny that he's still People have still have just decided that he's a flop. It's really funny. <laughs> I find it genuinely amusing that he he got he didn't score in one game and then got sent off. And the immediate decision, which will hold for the rest of his career, is that he's not very good. I mean, there is an obvious there is an obvious line about his ability to get better. But we, <laughs> well, let's talk about Fulham instead. He's, incre- in he's increasingly becoming the natural selection, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, second week in a row that they've suffered a stoppage time defeat to Manchester opposition, the Cottages. Yeah, they they, they were they were really unlucky. Um, I've got to say, one of the most impressive things about Fulham is that they were missing two really key players yesterday. Obviously, Mitrovic, but also Harrison Reed, who I've seen Fulham fans raving about and saying he could be making a push for the England squad. He's been that good this season. So in come Tom Kearney, who hasn't started a game this season, which I find really surprising. Vinicius up front as well. And then you've still got Dan James on the bench. You know, they've got they've got quite a bit of squad depth Fulham, certainly in the attacking areas. I really like watching them play. I think they play football in the right way. Pereira and Willian really threatening down the flanks. Targeted Malassia, which, which works really well. You know, if, if Mitrovic sort of carried that form over from the first half of the season to the second and they managed to sign a decent centre-back, I genuinely think they could sort of push for top seven, eight. You know, that's how, that's, that's how, that's how good they look, you know, whenever I've seen them play. And then man of the match yesterday, you know, rightly so, was Jao Palinha, who, um, who made nine tackles, which is the most anyone's made in a match all season. He's made 37 throughout the whole of the season, which is seven more than any other player in the league. Good Lord. Definitely one of the best, obviously one of the best DMs in the league. Um, I think they've paid less than 20 million quid from him as well. He's Portuguese and he's... Um, his, his agent is George Mendes. I mean, how he's ended up at Fulham, I've no idea. Um, but he basically it, he basically is their defence. That's Fulham's weaknesses. They just haven't got the the, the centre halves really, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, really impressed with them yesterday, despite despite losing. What, what should I know about the match winner Alejandro Garnacho? Well, he's he's a he's a kid that they signed as a as a, a fetus effectively, and. Um, I'd, funny find I'd heard that, that I think he was, was he he was taken on the preseason tour by Ten Hard, but then didn't play at all, and that there were like question marks over his attitude and whether maybe he was a little bit too big time. That that has been kind of doing the rounds about Garnacho, um, but he's obviously buckled down and ten, well, there's one of two things has happened: either he's buckled down and he's he's seen the error of his ways. Or Ten Hag has realised that he's so good that he's allowed to have a bad attitude. Both of those things happen in football all of the time. It, it will be Ten Hag said after the game that the World Cup comes at a bad time for him because you know he's kind of on this crest of a wave and and now he's going to have four weeks where where nothing happens. But at the same time, it's four weeks training with the with the rest of the, the rump of the first team. It's four weeks to get kind of a little bit more used to that kind of dynamic of Ten Hag's side for the style to become more pronounced. 
United have signed an awful lot of kids from around the world in the last 10, 15 years, and I'm not sure any of them have come through particularly. And then you've got people like Jaden Sancho, who's fast disappearing in a puff of smoke at, at Old Trafford. Mm. Just um, quickly on Garnacho, I think it was Fernandez, who, Bruno Fernandez, who came out after a Europa League game and kind of said that he didn't have the best attitude on, on tour. Um, and what quite intrigued me is that when Garnacho scored that goal, you can see Fernandez. I think he slaps the, <laughs> slaps the back of his head and whispers something to him. And it's I'd, I'd be super intrigued to know if he did say, right, well done for scoring, but do not let this get to your head. That, that's the impression I got. Um, mm. Not that I can speak whatever language they were speaking to each other in. But I got the impression it was, yes, well done, but please do not get carried away. Like, this is... This is a platform for you to kick on and build off. So yeah, yeah he, he, was, he was he was like wagging his finger. It yeah. definitely felt like a bit of a telling off. I yeah, watched it, um, I watched Garnacho play for Man United youth team against Wolves last season. He'd already been called up to the Argentina squad by that point, which is as a seventeen-year-old, which is pretty remarkable. Mm. He, he, he does have a bit of Ronaldo about him. His speed, his balance, gets his head mm. up when he's running. Um, I guess hopefully he's just not as much of a insert word here as uh, as Ronaldo well, I mean even if fun. he was you'd still get some like, a couple of really good decades out of him and then, the, and then a cracking interview with Piers Morgan, <laughs> <laughs> Piers Morgan. <laughs> Lord knows what channel that'll be on in 20 years time <laughs> channel yeah anyway uh, okay next up Leicester we're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. We get the Cotton Mills Derby of Burnley Blackburn, the big one on Thursday's pod, and you may have seen that it was Burnley who ran at 3 0 winners over their near neighbours at Turf Moor on Sunday. Ashley Barnes scoring twice, putting the ball in the net twice, and the opposition goalkeeper once. <laughs> Vincent Company's side are now back to being three points clear at the top of the championship, which returns, by the way, while the World Cup's still on. This is curious. Gets back up and running on the 10th of December, so with a week of 
events in Qatar still to play. Mm. Now, back to the Premier League. Whatever their decision is, I'll always respect it. Know that they will do what it is they feel they need to do. I'm, uh, I'm not daft. I, I know football. Sometimes it comes to those that point when there's an international break and the fixtures coming up. It's a good time maybe to change it, and I, I do fear for him. The last time the Premier League paused for an international break, although admittedly not as long as this one, was late September. Back then, Leicester had just lost six games in a row. They chipped five to Brighton and then six against Spurs and they were last in the table. Brendan looked like a beaten man. And all around the news desks of the country, whatever his equivalent of Operation London Bridge, was poised to be put into action. A change was imminent. Well, we got a change, all right. Leicester won their first game back 4-0 against Forest, and since they've racked up four wins now in their last five. They've only conceded one goal since early October in the Premier League, and that was to Man City. And their latest fine result came this weekend when they went to West Ham and won 2-0. Good Lord. Rob Tanner joins us now from Leicester. Rob. Good day, guys. How are you? Very well. Rob, it's a, it's a question that we've been kind of waiting to ask you. How, how has this transformation happened? At Leicester, what what's taken place there? Well, I think it's after the um, the defeat at Bournemouth, which came after the the Forest win, which obviously was a fantastic fillip for him. But that they were still having issues defensively when they went to Bournemouth, and um, Brendan spent the week after that just going back to basics and, and rebuilding their defensive philosophy in, in a way. Um, he's made a, a number of changes, uh, a few um, changes to the personnel as well, and. Since then, they've just slowly built confidence as well. And also, Lars Knudsen, the um, set-piece coach that's come in, he's had a chance to, to bed in and uh, work with them as well. So they look a lot more assured at set-pieces. And that was their Achilles heel, um, both defensively and uh, in attack as well. They, 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 they look terrible at set-pieces. And slowly, they've turned it around. And um, it, Brendan has been still quite stoic in, in the press conferences. At West Ham, he was talking about betrayal, how he normally sense uh, betrayal when uh, a change of manager is imminent, when he knows he's in trouble. And he never uh, felt that at, at Leicester. So, but he's still talking in those terms. So um, it's, it's been a remarkable turnaround with only three goals conceded in the last eight games, considering they conceded 22 in the first seven. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, it does bear mentioning that the teams they've beaten in this run have been uh, Nottingham Forest, Leeds, Wolves, Everton and West Ham, all who, all of whom who share the fact that they're down at that end of the table. But still, these were games that they were, these were games that they were losing uh, previously. Uh, so the defence has been sort of, it's that simple, really. Do you just go back to the training ground and get the players to think a little bit differently? First of all, I, I think it's important you pointed out the, 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 the fixtures because I think that was fundamental in the ownership's thinking on Brendan, they realised, they recognised, A, they hadn't um, helped, helped him, supported him, given him what he wanted in the transfer window, but also the first seven games were particularly tough. Uh, four of the big six in that first seven. Uh, but then that they, I know a lot of people are expecting Leicester to make a change, but I was told from the outset he was going to be given this run of games because they thought that was a fair reflection of where the team were. So, They've given that. Also, I, th- I think um, the, the way he's gone about it, I mean, it isn't just so much defensively because the strange thing about Leicester in those first seven games were they weren't playing that badly at times. They, in an attacking sense, they were still scoring goals. James Madison was being influential. Um, it was just suddenly when they got caught on the transition, they were so open. Um, it was quite often you would see that there would be just the two centre-backs 
and there would be you know three on two or four on two breaking away. It happened at Brighton. It happened at Tottenham. It kept happening. Uh, what he's done is try to shore them up a little bit defensively at the back. So when they do go forwards, there's a little bit of insurance behind. He's changed Wilfred Ndidi for Buba Samare, a younger, more athletic and informed uh, defensive midfielder. He's got Yuri Tielemans dropping in because they've got no right natural right, right winger. So Timothy Castagna provides the width of fullback when he bombs forward. And previously, the fullbacks were getting caught so high up the pitch, there was acres of space that teams could run into. Now Yuri Tielemans drops in and covers for Castagna. It's just these little tweaks that he's done um, in, in a defensive way that's just given them a bit more assurance. And also, undoubtedly, uh, the presence of Walt Fars at the back. I mean, he's been... I can't remember a signing coming in and having such an impact on the team so quickly. It's remarkable. He's a proper defender. He loves to defend blocks, tackles. He's aggressive. He, he can engage and press into midfield and and, and, um, and, and try and win the, the ball back early. I mean, before they were sitting off and letting teams come in at them and, you know, it was a, a nightmare. Too much time, too much space. Now with Danny Amati alongside him, those two are very aggressive in the way they defend. So there's a number of factors that uh, have contributed to this turnaround. All right. And Brendan will now have an extended period of time with some of his team to try and work further improvements. One of the people who won't be there, of course, is James Madison, who did get the call up, who did score this weekend, but who did then leave with what looked like, well, what he, he described as what, a sore knee after 25 minutes. What's the word on him now? I don't think they're too concerned about it. Um, he had a little niggle, like a knock to the back of his right knee, um, which forced him to have limited training time in the build-up to the West Ham game. It was post the Everton game. And obviously he didn't feature in the Caribou Cup game either. So um, he was given a bit of rest and then he just felt it when he took a corner in the 23rd minute at, uh, at West Ham. So they didn't mess about. They took him straight off as a precaution. He said he's going to be fine. Brendan says he's going to be fine. So, I, I mean, I, initially we thought, oh, no, because we've been campaigning. Well, certainly I have been campaigning for Madison to be in this England squad for a while because I think he brings something different. And I just couldn't understand Gareth Southgate's stance on him, you know, for him not to be including the squad for three years when he's been the inform English attacking midfielder for the last 15 months. Uh, since the start of the previous season. All his stats suggest that as well. So I just found it baffling. So for him to finally get in and then to pick up an injury would have been heartbreaking for him. But um, thankfully, it doesn't look like it's going to be too much of an issue. Fingers crossed. Rob, thank you so much for that. And uh, enjoy your time off if you're getting any. Well, no, I, I mean, as the athletic rumbles on, we will still be trying to find features on Leicester City for the uh, the next six weeks until we get action back at the King Power Stadium. So, yeah, I'm, I'm racking my brain for some ideas. Rob Tanner. Who's in more trouble, West Ham or Everton? They're both only one point above the bottom three. Everton, who got beaten 3-0 by Bournemouth this weekend. Well, I was, I was in the vicinity of the London Stadium on Saturday and then had to get back to the north. And does all the, for some reason, there were, all of Yorkshire left for London on Saturday. I think a combination of the Rugby League at Arsenal, Leeds and Bradford were both away. And I think there was, some, was, there a, was there a, a Rugby Union match at Twickenham as well. There were, there were some people in white jackets. That's normally the reason that they're, that they're travelling on, on public transport. So the trains were rammed. And on the way back, so I had to go from York instead of Leeds. And on the way back, there were a surprising number of Northern West Ham fans, which I didn't realise was a thing. But the people with proper, like, thick Yorkshire accents debating the relative merits of Kurt Zuma. And 
and they were all very, very worried. To the extent that in uh, the, uh, I think on York Station platform, I heard someone say that it was one, the one point above relegation, which was the same situation they were in when Moyes came back to save them, mm. and that their solace was that the squad now is much better, but they don't seem to have any idea of how to make them play as a team. And I think that probably is is a really accurate summation of where West Ham are. I think they'll be all right because they've got quality in that squad. I'm really surprised that, that there isn't more panic around Everton because Everton are. I mean, Lampard saved them last season, spent quite a lot of money in the summer. They seem to have forgotten that they need to avoid relegation again. As though they assumed, well, Lampard did it once, so he didn't do it again, simply by... You know, Frank Lampard's main skill at Everton is is his complete not being Rafa Benitez-ness. That is his kind of... I, that's what makes him so ideal for them. But there is no sign at all of any kind of team emerging under Lampard you saw the, the scenes from the, the fans at full time throwing Alex Iwobi's shirt back at him that's not great Seamus Coleman looked genuinely distressed as maybe pushing it but like quite upset by the reaction of the fans there are real problems at Everton and the only solution anyone seems to come up with is well that they'll be able to strengthen the squad in January they keep doing that and they keep getting it wrong so I don't know why anyone would think that is is going to bail Everton out again this time. There's not an obvious relegation candidate at the moment in the Premier League. If I was Everton, I'd be genuinely terrified. They've scored 11 goals in 15 games. It's the lowest goal per game average that Everton have ever had in the Premier League. Frank Lampard making 11 changes to his side for the Carabao Cup clash midweek with Bournemouth. They lost that 4-1, but then he had the 18 back for this one and lost it by three goals again. It's not great, is it? I guess what we were just... Discussing with Rob Tanner uh, was how sometimes even a really disastrous situation doesn't need to be resolved by a dismissal, but just a bit of time to work things through with players. But I'm not sure if that's something you're confident would necessarily bear fruit with with Frank. Or, and would it with David Moyes, do you think? I was just going to say quickly on, on Everton, you know, going to strengthen in January is not is not going to be easy. I mean, they, they need a goal scorer, right? Calvert-Lewin just can't keep himself fit. Trying to sign a striker in January is, you know, notoriously difficult. But also, you know, the finances of it. You know, pre Richarlison sale, they were they were they were they were struggling on wages, let alone let alone fees. I think they tried to sign Tokowski a couple of times, and and his wage had to be. It, it was it was difficult to get it through at board level. Um, Cody and Tokowski both on sort of freeze, which sort of sum up, you know, their 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 transfer dealings unless they make a big sale. So. Connor Cody's comments after the game saying that they were shocking not good enough Bournemouth wanted it more we need to go back to the drawing board that's just awful signs for Everton but they obviously did sign Neil Mopé from, from Brighton in the summer as well but I think he's only scored once in 10 appearances um, so even when they are kind of bringing in new faces apart from Cody and Tarkovsky they're not really hitting the ground running in the way that they would be be hoping for so if you've spent that money on Mopé in the summer and then you've got to buy another striker in January it's not the greatest sign that you completely know what you're doing is it? No, that's true. Uh, there is, There have been suggestions that Bournemouth might be thanking Gary O'Neill for his work as interim manager and handing the job to Marcelo Bielsa. I'm not sure if that's a real thing or just that the new owner has said that he quite liked that fellow Bielsa. In. Is there any substance to it? I, I saw this for the first time on social media over the weekend. I've not heard, heard mention of it before, but the Bournemouth fans seem to be taking it quite seriously. Hmm. I find it slightly surprising um, but then I also saw a picture of Bielsa getting a bus in Uruguay the other day, uh, just queuing at a bus stop. Uh, so never rule anything out with him. He 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 does different things to most people, Marcelo Bielsa. It would be, I mean, it'd be funny to try it, to try and avoid relegation with Bielsa just in the middle of a season. I think I'd, it'd be interesting to watch. So why not do it? Be harsh on Gary, Gary O'Neill, though. 
Mm. I think um, Gary O'Neill's trying to detach himself already from the inevitable not getting the job because he started talking about himself in the third person last week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. which, which, <laughs> which I was very concerned about. But they won, they've won two matches since then, so it's, it's maybe he's gained respect from the players. Have you ever done that, Tim? Tim's never done that. <laughs> have you ever done that, Rory? Uh, have I talked about myself in the third person? I probably have at some have point, you? yeah, but not in public. <laughs> I don't know. I can't rule it out. I can't remember. <laughs> it wasn't like a phase I went through. No. I just. I, I mean, I would like to, but I can't imagine the mental leap it would take for you to, as you say in public, describe yourself as like a, a an entity, a kind of uh, yeah, weird. But to be fair to Dario Neil, the the way he said it. What did he say? He said there's a, something like there's a lot of speculation over what might happen. Let's let's worry about the team first, and let's worry about Gary O'Neill next. Oh no, that's different. I, I think that's, that's probably. Different. I think that's probably. Yeah. Tim's been a bit harsh. Yeah, Tim's fears. <laughs> Thank God. I, 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 I just can't imagine myself ever doing that, or, or Gary O'Neill being any kind of you know en- entity. No. Um, <laughs> well, two other games which took place this weekend. Very shortly, we'll be hearing from Nick Miller, who's somewhere on the way to Qatar. Or at least that's what he's claiming as he sits at home sending in expense claims. Uh, Nottingham Forest <laughs> beat Crystal Palace this weekend. And Aston Villa... Do you remember there was a... I had, sorry, I mean, I, I, we probably discussed this before, but famously there was a uh, tabloid journalist who did Paul that Smith. in 2008. 2012. Uh, oh, 2012, was it? Yeah, Paul Smith, yeah. I, th- I the, thought it was, it's a brilliant, it was 2012. Brilliant. Okay. There might have been another one in 2008, but Paul yeah. Smith, yeah, it cost him his job in 2012. And to and be how fair, did they rumble him, Rory? Uh, I, can't re- oh, I can't remember. So, oh, I think, did he, did he claim to have been in a place that didn't exist or something, or where there wasn't a game? Right, possibly. Something ridiculous. He wasn't a but bright man. But he'd stayed man, home. Possibly. He'd stayed yeah. home and yeah. just kind of... <laughs> was claiming. I don't think. He, I don't think he was defrauding them particularly. I think it was that he was claiming to be reporting from Donetsk or wherever. Right. When in fact, he was in Portsmouth. Right. Which, to be fair, Donet- <laughs> don't say it, Rory. <laughs> okay. Two other games which took play this weekend: uh, Nottingham Forest, uh, who beat Crystal Palace one 0 and Aston Villa had another victory this time away at Brighton. Anything we should know about those before we? Dial up, Nick. It's interesting that um, that Villa have been a crisis club all season, and that Brighton have been one of the surprise packages, and yet they are separated by three points in the Premier League table. And I think that kind of sums up where we are with the whole season. So we we've kind of spent fourteen weeks or whatever drawing these vast conclusions about all these teams when there are in fact nine points between ninth and twentieth. That's you know that that's a bad week for a team or a good week for another. It's really concertinaed the Premier League right up until kind of fifth almost. And you can see United and Liverpool both being able to kind of close the gap to Spurs and Newcastle over the course of a you know a couple of games. It's been a really kind of weird season. Uh, and I think those two teams kind of sum it up. Hmm. One Gibbs White scored the winner for Forrest on Saturday, really kind of coming into his own now. I mean, he was he was a talismanic figure for Sheffield United in the Championship last season, but you know it's one thing doing that in the Championship, another in the Premier League, sort of outshining Lingard and, and Brennan Johnson. I, I guess you'd expect that for the fee they paid, but um, there was a certain irony in in him uh, putting Wolves bottom of the league on Saturday after being 
the shining light of Wolves' academy for the past sort of decade or so, and then they they sold him in the summer. Um, but no, I'm I'm really pleased for him. Looks like he's found a home there. Very very talented kids. You know, we're talking all about attacking players who can make the England squad. You know, in four years' time, I would expect him to certainly be in that conversation if he carries on what he's doing. Mm. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of condition Forrester in after the after the next four weeks or so. How how many of their of their I wouldn't say their squad, but their kind of regular first teamers are going to be away. Not that many, I wouldn't have thought. But this, I've always so I kind of thought with Forest for a long time that if they could get to the World Cup in touch with everybody else, then you would expect them to be quite a lot better in the second half of the season. This, mm. this will be Steve Steve Cooper's chance to actually sort of make all those decisions. Tim's touched on it a couple of times. There's been very little time to coach in the last few weeks. This is his chance to kind of actually start to craft a team from the the squad that he he was presented with. So of all the, t- I think the fact that they've just turned a corner the last three or four games, you know, they've unbeaten, I think, in four at home, beaten Liverpool, beaten, beaten Palace. It just gives them chance now to, that's given them a bit of a platform and you can, you can see Forrest being substantially better in the second half of the season than they, than they have been initially. Mm. Well, speaking of getting to the World Cup, but still being in touch with everybody else, Nick Miller's doing precisely that in the company of Laurie Whitwell, Martino, the cameraman, and John, who's their enforcer. Where have they all got to by now? Let's find out. Here's Nick Miller. Nick Miller, you're looking well. Thank you. I feel dreadful. Oh. Uh, it's day... I can't remember what day it is. I think it's day 13. Day 12, day 13 uh, of our trip. And uh, you join me. I'm in Belgrade. Okay. What are you doing there? We are going to go and look around the Maracanã Stadium. Um, mm-hmm. We're with, uh, I think, a local journalist about uh, the Serbian team at the World Cup here later on. And then uh, later on tonight, we're moving on to Sofia. Well, last time we spoke, you were in, I think, Amsterdam. No, you were in Cologne. We are in Cologne. We'd just, just come from Amsterdam, I think, when we were in Cologne. So... What were the highlights between then and now? Well, uh, we uh, went from Cologne to interview Mario Goetze, who obviously is just got into back into the Germany squad, uh, which was very fortunate timing. And then we went to Bayern Munich against Werder Bremen. We went to a little club called Altach, where uh, Miroslav Kloser is coaching. That's on the kind of Austrian-Swiss border. We were in uh, Venice, Milan, and uh, we were in Zagreb yesterday. We had lunch at one of the Boban's restaurant. That was very nice. Right. Was the great man there? He apparently wasn't. No, no. He lives upstairs, apparently, and he wasn't there. Right. Oh, that's a shame. In Venice, was it Venice where you saw the original mould of the World Cup? Ah, then that was uh, that was in Milan, just outside okay. Milan. All right. Is it is it displayed kind of behind a like a kind of Turin shroud type thing? Or no, it was just it was just out. People were touching it. People were picking up. It was incredible. Yeah, just there. Extraordinary. We spoke to the the, uh, the son of the the guy who designed it. Is no longer with us, but we spoke to his son who uh, was very lovely and told us all about the history of the design of the World Cup trophy. Wow, that's a lot of very, very exciting content. Where can people find all of that, Nick? Uh, well, on The Athletic, you can follow me uh, on Twitter, NickMiller79, and then Laurie Whitwell as well, who is um, currently doing some very important journalist things. And yeah, it's all up on The Athletic. All right, two last things. And one is, uh, what should people look out for from you guys in the next few days? And secondly, are you on schedule to get to the World Cup in time? 
We currently are, yeah. We've got a, a bit of uh, scheduling to work out involving where we're actually going to be in a few days. It's a long uh, story related to admin and what you should look out for. We've got, we think, uh, so in Sofia, we're gonna, I think we're going to uh, speak with Dimitar Berbatov. Hmm. Um, and then uh, we're off to Istanbul, and I'm not really sure what's going to happen there. Right. That's the, that's the magic of it, Nick. Anything, anything could happen. Very, very nice. Well, enjoy yourself then in Belgrade and on the rest of your journey. And I look forward to catching up with you again in the next few days. Thank you. Well, that's a journey that in, I mean, a simplified form, two of you are about to be making. Although, uh, you, well, you're first to go, Rory. You're off on Friday. I go on Friday by aeroplane. I don't know if yep. Nick and Laurie know about them. Um, the... <laughs> The, or the athletics marketing department. Um, I'm torn at the moment between obviously being very aware that I'm lucky to have a job that enables me to go to the World Cup uh, and a sense of foreboding and trepidation because it's this World Cup. Mm. How, how, how do you feel, Jay, about it? You're going out a little bit later. Yeah, uh, I got out on the 28th of November, so midway through the group stages, and I'm there till after the final. I think Rory's kind of hit the nail on the head. Uh, this is going to be my first World Cup, so obviously it's something I've I've been really excited for. It's something I hoped I'd do, obviously, when I was growing up and wanted to become a sports journalist. So obviously, that's, I can't suppress that excitement. Um, and obviously, my family is super happy for me, but then also know that it's going to be a World Cup like no other. And unfortunately, the likelihood is that, is that we're going to be reporting on a lot of unsavoury incidents over there but you know we've got to be prepared for that and, and make sure we do do that well you can uh, follow of course jay and rory through theathletic.com and the new york times and, and rory i hope you'll be popping up on our daily uh, totally football show the title of which i'm not sure if we've actually settled on yet but there will be a nightly totally football show a uh, couple of early editions of which will be popping up on Wednesday and Thursday as we preview groups A to D and, excitingly, E to H with special guests and, you know, chat. Anyway, uh, before that, we've got the Euro show up on Tuesday with James Horncastle, Julian Laurence, Raphael Honigstein and Alvaro Romeo. So loads of totally fun coming your way. That brings us to the end of today's show, though. So many thanks then to Tim... To Rob Tano, who was with us before, Nick, Jay, Rory, producer Charlie, and you listener. Have yourself a great time. Best of luck to all of you, and we'll catch up with you soon on The Totally Football Show. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.